Thank you, Nathan, for reading that psalm before the sermon. I appreciate that a lot. I want to open the sermon with the words from Revelation chapter 1. These words that I so often use. Grace be unto you and peace. From him which is and which was and which is to come. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ. Who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead. And the prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us. And washed us from our sins in his own blood. And has made us kings and priests unto God and his father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He washed us from our sins in his own blood. The uh, passage up here, beginning in verses of Ephesians 2. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood even the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So I'd like for you to think about those two words or those two phrases. Uh, the one in Revelation chapter 1, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sin in his own blood. And then also this one in Ephesians, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. A candle's light is best seen in a dark room. It's easiest to read a piece of paper that is black ink on white paper. So whatever it is that we want to see and understand, sometimes it's easiest for us to see and understand it if it's contrasted to its circumstances, to its environment. A candle's dim light is best seen in a dark room. It makes the most light there. I remember some time ago I was talking with a with a neighbor one evening and it got dark while I guess I had walked over, I don't remember. Maybe I'd driven the golf cart over and didn't have lights. I don't I don't remember. But I was at the neighbor's place and it was a dark, uh, cloudy night and there wasn't a light around. I simply could not see to get home. All I had was my little flip phone, so I turned it flipped it open and just a little light from that backlit screen is all I had to go home on and of course it kept going out so I had to flip it closed and flip it open again but all it took was just a little bit of light in the in the darkness of the night and and I could find my way home a candle's dim light is best seen in a dark room so so it is that we must understand what sin is so that we can have an appreciation for what it means to be cleansed and washed and forgiven. So I guess that's the um, the theme of the sermon this morning. It's kind of dark. But while I paint that dark picture, it is only so that we can clearer understand, so we can better understand the forgiveness and the cleansing and the washing that God has granted to us. And also as a word of warning to those who have not had their sins forgiven. 
If you're here and you have not had your sins forgiven, perhaps this will help you understand um, why you should why you should come to Jesus for forgiveness and for cleansing. So um, we have to start this sermon in Genesis three, I think. So turn with me there. I discovered that while I was um, putting this sermon together, um, it seemed most of my uh, texts are taken from the Old Testament. And I think there's probably a reason for that. It's because in the Old Testament, we see so many examples of what God, of how God views sin. So we have to define, first of all, what it is. And here we see probably the introduction. Well, we see the introduction of sin into the world. But we also see a very simple and clear definition of what sin is. Genesis 3, the first six verses. Now the, sub, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. I think I'll start reading there. What is sin? This is the introduction of sin into the world. We know this is the fall of man. A, a very apt uh, term for what happened here. But there was a threefold attraction here to Eve after she started listening to the serpent. There was a threefold attraction here for this food. It was pleasant to the eyes. It was good for food. And it was pleasing to the eyes. And also it was desirable to give you wisdom. Now I don't know exactly how much we could elaborate on that. I suppose we could elaborate a lot on that. But what I want, what I want to get out of this passage here is that sin, as, as I want to, to, to define it out of this passage, is that sin is obeying the wrong voice. If we can simplify this whole subject of sin, I think the, the Bible gives it to us right here in, very, in a very clear and easy to understand story that sin is obeying the wrong voice. Now when Jesus was tempted in Matthew chapter 4, it records that, and Jesus was tempted. Satan came to him and said, look, uh, you're, you're hungry. All you have to do is to make these stones into bread and you can satisfy your hunger. But Jesus refused it. And he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God shall man live. And he was quoting Deuteronomy. But the reason Jesus refused it was because of who was saying it. It wasn't so much wrong to have a miraculous occurrence to, and make stones into bread and eat them. 
as it was to listen to the voice of the serpent, of the, of the temper, of the tempter. The problem wasn't so much the issue itself as whose voice he would have been listening to. See, a sinner and a believer may live a life that at first glance looks almost the same. But they're completely opposite in relation to how God views their lives. One is listening to God. One is listening to the devil. The simple definition, again, is listening to the wrong voice. It's taking my way instead of God's way. It's rebellion. There's a few other passages of Scripture that just give us very simple, clear definitions of sin. And some of these are a little bit hard to understand, maybe. The, the first one here is, but then there's also some very uh, simple ones and clear ones. But Proverbs 21, verse 4 says this. He says, In high look and a proud heart and the plowing of the wicked is sin. Now, I don't know exactly how that should or should not be translated. There's, there's various translations of what is translated here as the plowing of the wicked. But I think the idea here is, is that the wicked man is listening to the wrong voice. Even whatever he does is wrong. Because he is listening to the wrong voice. Not because it's wrong to go plow in and of itself. But it's because he's doing it for the wrong reasons. He's motivated for the, for the wrong, by the wrong purpose. Proverbs 24 verse 9. The thought of foolishness is sin. The thought of foolishness is sin. And the scorner is an abomination to men. Now here, um, the idea is, and we'll, we'll get into this a little bit later. But it's because the mind and the heart is where sinful actions originate. That is why the thought of foolishness is sin. It's because the mind and the heart is where sinful action originates. And then Romans 14, verse 23. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Now faith in its barest, most practical form is believing and doing what God says. And if you're doing something other than that, it's sin. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And that is because it is not believing and doing what God says. It's doing something other than that. And that makes it sin. James 4 verse 17. Therefore to him that doeth to... Sorry. Therefore to him that knoweth to, to do good and doeth it not... To him, it is sin. Now, here we have a simple black and white definition of good and evil. Actions are either right or wrong. If you do what's right and good, it's right. If you don't do what's right and good, it's sin. Simple black and white. Typical James theology. Therefore, to, therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him, it is sin. And then 1 John 5.17 says, all unrighteousness is sin. So that's some, that's some background, some, just some, give you some definition of what sin is. And here's the reason that we need to know these things, and it's because it's a personal issue. All right, the problem of sin gets us two ways. 
The reason that we have to think about sin is because it's a personal issue. It's not just out there somewhere. We deal with it personally. And it comes to us in two ways. The first is because we are children of Adam. We are children of Adam. And so we have this genetic problem. So the first part of this, of the way sin gets us is because it's genetic. I suppose you could call it that. That's what I'm going to call it. We have this genetic problem. First John, first Corinthians 15 verse 22 says, in Adam all die. But there's also a flicker of hope in that, or a lot of hope in that. It says, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now turn to um, Romans chapter 5. And this is um, a passage that has a lot to do with, with sin and how that it's a mankind problem and how that we have inherited sin from Adam. But the other thing that's, that's a, just a real part of this passage is that there is hope woven into this passage. Well, it, it tells us all about sin. It tells us about hope. But see, if you stop and think about it, hope is meaningless. Where there's no condemnation that you want to avoid. Salvation is meaningless if there's no destruction to be saved from. Did you ever think about that? So here in this passage, we have the two just beautifully woven together. But I, I want to especially think about how that we have inherited the sin nature. Uh, Romans 5, verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For unto the law sin was not in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so the righteousness of one even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one, many should be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by, Je by Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 12, verse 16, 17, 18, and 19 all tell us that sin came into the world by one man. And it's because of this one man's um, introduction, having introduced sin into the world, that we are now all subject to it. But he also says 
that it's the same way, but it's opposite, I think is what he's saying in 15 and 16. Just the same as one man introduced sin into the world, so by one, salvation can be introduced into the world. But what I want to, what I want us to understand here is that sin is in the world. It was introduced by Adam, but we have inherited it all because of him. The second part of the second part of this reason that we have to think about this and the reason that it's a personal issue is that it's because we have all sinned. Don't we? Why sure. We just we can't just hang all the world's troubles on Adam and Eve and, and blame them for everything. We personally have this sin problem. So this is this is a scriptural teaching. Uh, Psalm 130, verse 3. If thou, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who should stand? He's saying there's nobody that would stand. If God would bear everybody's iniquity and, and mark them all down, there is no one who would stand. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. There is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. A very pessimistic observation by Solomon, but very accurate. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, some of you um, often heard uh, Deacon Sam preach. Now, Deacon Sam has gone on to his reward. But he would often quote this verse. And he would point out how it starts with all and ends with all. And all that all means is all. I can still hear him say those things. All we like sheep have gone astray. It includes every one of us. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So here again we have this idea that everyone has sinned. But the gift of salvation is open to everyone. And then Romans 3, verse 23. For that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. So this is some scripture that tells us about how that all have sinned. There is none righteous, no, not one. But it's also completely observable. The scripture tells us this, but it's also completely observable. First of all, in the world around us. And you don't have to much more than crack your eyes open in the morning and you can see that there's something wrong with the world we live in. There's news stories constantly of problems right here in the neighborhoods where we live. There are stories in the paper just about every day of arrests made for drunken driving and for molesting children. And we look around the world and we see how the despots rise to power by force and they mistreat their people and it seems the only way to stop some, somebody like that is by the use of force and when that happens millions lose their lives read the history of the 20th century it's the bloodiest century in the history of the world and that's what that history will tell you we have in this nation the issue of abortion there's 3300 children unborn children every day are murdered in the U.S. And aside from the obvious moral issue, think about how this nation is purging its own brightest hope for the future. It's a shame. It's a blot. 
Then there's state-sponsored education. It has become a laboratory and a playground for humanist, God-denying, and leftist philosophy. In the U.S. and in many other nations, the legal definition of marriage has been perverted. Gender fluidity and identity politics rules the day. This is the world we live in. And it's not hard for us to identify these things as being inspired by the devil. And we can easily, easily label them as sinful. But the problem isn't just out there. The problem is secondly in our own lives. And if we are honest with ourselves, it's not just that hard to tell that there's something about us personally that isn't quite right. We are made out of the same stuff. Our feet are made out of the same clay that everyone's out, that everyone else's are. And if we don't have a realistic view of our own tendencies and our own propensities, we are setting ourselves up for a fall, according to 1 Corinthians 10 anyway. He says, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. So sin is not just out there. Sin is also a very real part of our own lives. And if we don't struggle against it daily, we will be overcome by it. Now there's some very graphic and descriptive lists of sins in Paul's writings. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Descriptions of sin. Galatians 5, 19-21. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, or they are obvious. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as also I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. We can read Romans 1 and we can read Romans 2. There's just a lot of, of scripture that tells us what sin is and describes it for us. So that, that's, a, that's a definition of sin and how that it's not just out there, but it can come close. Now I want you to think a little bit about the nature of sin. How it works. And here again, we'll turn to a story in the, in the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 4. I want to read the first uh, part of this chapter. Genesis chapter 4. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And again she bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. 
And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood cried unto me from the ground. And now thou art cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be on the earth. The nature of sin. God told Cain. This was a warning before he acted upon his wrath against Abel. This was God's warning. Why art thou wroth? Why are you so angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If thou doest well... Shalt thou, not be, shalt thou not be accepted? If thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Sin lieth at the door. Here is sin personified. It is an evil beast. Waiting to ambush you, Cain. Its anxious limbs are quivering with the tension of excitement. Its foul mouth is drooling with anticipation. This is, this is sin. Its appetite is keen, but it's never satisfied. It always destroys its prey. Not so that it can fill its stomach, but just for the sheer sadistic pleasure of bringing torment and ruin to its victims. It's like a weasel that kills not to eat meat, but just to drink blood. It is a carnivorous monster feeding on the souls of men. This is, this is sin. This is what God is telling Cain. This is an evil beast just waiting in ambush just outside the door, waiting to pounce on you when you walk through it. Sin lieth at the door. Sin always brings bondage. It always enslaves. It is never honest with its intentions. Sin is the wicked woman of Proverbs 7 whose mouth, whose words are smooth and alluring. But the end result is destruction. Proverbs 7 verses 22 and 23 talks about the simple minded man falling for the traps of sin. He goeth after her straightway as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction of the stocks to a dart strike through his liver. And as a bird hasteth to the snare and knoweth not that it is for his life. Now in Solomon's mind, and he's exactly right here, is that the sinner is simple-minded. If you stop and think a little bit, Mr. Sinner, you will amend your ways, you will repent, is what Solomon is saying. The sinner is simple-minded. The, si the simple-minded, this simple-minded sinner is like an unsuspecting steer in the butcher's chute. And he's completely unsuspecting of that bullet that's going to, Explode into his brain in just a few seconds. He's just like a gullible bird, merrily hopping about, pecking at the corn that's under the trap, just ready to crash down over them. They're just as helpless as a sinner going, I'm sorry, they're just as helpless as a prisoner going to his correction. He's completely against his will, 
but he's there and he's captured and there's nothing he can do about it. The law is standing in judgment against him. Sin lies at the door. Unto thee shall be his desire. That means that sin wants to get you. Sin is personified here. But God is telling Cain, you should rule over him. Romans 7 verse 5. When we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. So that's that's sin. It's sin's progression. The motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Many of you have heard the story about the Arab that was traveling through the desert with his camel. And the Arab saw the sandstorm, the sandstorm coming. And so he quickly got his tent in place and he pegged it down firmly. And he just got, in, just got inside his tent in, in, into a little bit of protection just in time when the sandstorm hit. Of course, the camel was outside and the, the Arab was, was snugly inside, protected from the wind and the blowing sand. Well, the camel just stuck his nose inside the tent door and said, Mr. Arab, can, can I not uh, just have my nose in here so that I can breathe without all this sand in my nose? Well, the Arab said, sure, you can. I, I don't blame you for wanting to be in, in for wanting to breathe the air that's in here. That's, that's why I'm in here. And so the uh, camel just very gratefully just sighs and has his nose inside the tent door. But he just he just scoots forward just a little bit and, and his his eyes are soon showing inside the tent and says, uh, to you, my master, can, can I not just have my eyes in here as well? I mean, there's there's sand getting into him. I, I can't see in here if I could just have my eyes in here. And, and the Arab lets him, sure, you can have your eyes in here. Well, you, you know how the story would go. That, that soon the, the camel is in the tent and the Arab is in the sandstorm. But that's how sin works. It is never satisfied. It will always bring forth fruit unto death. Now think about sin's progression a little bit. Turn to Joshua chapter 7. This is a story about when the children of Israel had been coming through the wilderness and through the desert. And after 40 years, they crossed the Jordan River and the city of Jericho was right there in their road. God miraculously, by the hand of Joshua, um, delivered Jericho into the children of Israel's hands. By this miraculous deliverance, the walls fell down flat. And they had been told before they would go into Jericho, now listen, you can't take anything except for the gold and the silver and those kinds of things. You take those and you bring them and bring them into the treasury. Everything else is accursed. You destroy everything. Well, so that's what they thought happened. And they went over to the next little city, the city of Ai, and they said, this is just a little town. We're not going to muster all the forces. We're just going to have a, a small force of two or 3,000 men go up against it. And so that's what they did. And the, these men of Ai came out and chased the, the, 
the army of the children of Israel back and there was just a devastation. They lost uh, 30-some men. There was devastation in their army. And Joshua said, what's going on? And God said, listen, he said, get up off your knees. You have a problem here. There's sin in the camp. I'm just I'm just kind of relating this story. This isn't the exact words. So what they did was they cast lots to find out where this problem lie. And it was with Achan. And this is what he says in verse 21 of Joshua 7. And when I saw the spoils, when I saw among the spoils, a goodly Babylonish garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, then I coveted them and I took them. And behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. I saw, I coveted, I took. And now he was standing there facing the consequences. And this is how it so often works. There was no problem in the seeing. He couldn't help that. It's just how it happened. In fact, many others saw too as well because they couldn't have destroyed the city if they hadn't seen it. The problem began when he coveted. When he started wanting the accursed things for himself. And the problem was cemented in place when he took it and the problem was now bearing its fruit. What did we read in Romans 7? When we were in the flesh, the motions of sin which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. This is where the new covenant addresses the issue. And Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 addresses sin at the heart level. But so did the old covenant. Did you ever think about that? The tenth commandment was thou shalt not covet. If Achan would have obeyed this commandment, he would have spared himself and his family and his nation a lot of trouble. And this is so typical of how things go for us. James 1, 13 to 15. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when sin hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. To covet is to open the door to more problems involving not just the individual, but now others as well. And I wonder if that's not perhaps one reason why Jesus addresses the issue at the heart. To get rid of the problem before it affects others. In Matthew 5, anger is addressed as murder before it turns into murder. Adult, or I'm sorry, lust is addressed as adultery before it turns into adultery. So, so Jesus is saying, nip this thing in the bud. It, it starts in your heart. Get your heart right. In Matthew 15, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts, false witnesses and blasphemies. These are the things which defy man. In other words, it's because these things happen, they start in your heart. Now, I like to think a little bit about our response to sin. Now, God had told Cain that he is to rule over that and he is to master that. So, so what does that mean? How, how are we to rule over sin? How are we to master it? So let's, let's think about a few things. Um, now, when God told the children of Israel... 
to go into the land of Canaan and to conquer it. He, he told them to annihilate the people that lived there. Not just try to convert them, but to annihilate them. Man, woman, child, everything. And sometimes we question how that God could order something like that. But I think there's a few things that help us to understand that. And it seems, the first thing is, is that it seems that God reserves a special hatred for human sacrifice. This are, these are the things that were happening in the land of Canaan. There was human sacrifice occurring. This is what happened um, in the worship of Baal and Ashtaroth. And there's also, there were also some 1500 years later, there were Native American cultures that practiced human sacrifice as well. And I believe that God used the European colonial powers to bring an end to it. I'm not endorsing the Spanish conquistadors actions at all. I, I, I'm just not. We, we believe that all human life is sacred. And as Christians, we don't use the power of the sword at all. Not even to adjust, not even to exact justice on a culture like that. But I do think that God uses nations to bring about his justice. And I think that God was using the nation of Israel to bring an end to that abominable practice. Abominable practice. But the sad part is, and this is what I want us to think about a little bit, is that the Israelites were not thorough enough in their defeat of the Canaanite culture. And eventually even many practiced it themselves. So this is, this is the point. That the conquest of the land of Canaan is helpful to instruct us of how that we should regard sin. Judges 1 tells us of the lands that the children of Israel didn't conquer. And then in Judges 2 it tells us what happened. First four verses of Judges 2. And an angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bohem and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye done this? Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. This is the lesson for us. If we allow room in our hearts for just a little pet sin, it will come back and make problems for us. Just like it did for the children of Israel. Romans 13 verse 14. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh. To fulfill the lusts thereof. No provisions. Don't make any plans to satisfy your fleshly desires. That's what it means. To provision is to, is to provide for. So often, we're like the little boy who was going somewhere with his friends and his mom told him that you're not allowed to go swimming. But he took along his swim trunks just in case he couldn't resist the temptation. That's making provision for the flesh. Don't give it anything that it wants don't give it anything to go on if we make any allowance for the flesh it will be just for us like it was for the children of israel these provisions will become thorns in our sides and there will be traps that we will fall into so that's the first thing that i would like for you to think about is how we should uh, relate to sin give it no quarter not one 
not one tiny square inch in your heart. The second thing is to mortify it. Mortify, therefore, your members. Colossians 3, verses 5 to 7. Mortify your members which are upon the earth. Fornication and uncleanness and inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of Israel, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. Now mortify means to deaden and it means to kill. These things are so repulsive to us that our automatic response as believers is just like it would be that if you would be faced with a spider or some other creature that you just simply hate. And that is you just reach out and kill it. Now imagine you're in a tight space and there's hardly any room to wiggle. But there's this spider keeps running around up your back and across your face and you can't, you can't, you just, you just impulsively, you just have to smash it. I hope our response to sin is not so much motivated, however, by fear. By the fear of sin itself, but, the, but by the fear of God. And by a holy revulsion for the sins of the flesh. Galatians 6, verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. See, the world should appeal to the Christian no more than a rotting corpse hung on a Roman cross appealed to someone who saw it. But fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness, let it not once be named among you as become the saints. Get rid of it. Give it no quarter. Psalm 139, verses 19 to 22. Here, here is, um, at least for us, we can understand this as the David's enemies being a personification of sin. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men. For, us, for they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do not, do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? Am I not grieved with them? that rise up against thee, I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. That is our attitude. That should be our attitude against sin. A quote I heard recently was that we have to hate it with the passion of a thousand suns burning in our hearts. I think this, I think this is what it means to rule over sin. Just like God told Canaan, God told Cain that you need to rule over it. It wants to have you, but you need to rule over it. Now, there's, there's a question that we face sometimes, and that is, we, we look around in the world, how do we differentiate between the sin and the sinner? This is our attitude towards sin in the world around us, in our own hearts. This is our attitude. So how, how do we navigate the question between sin and sinner? Can you separate a person from his actions? Not really. But yet we need to in, in, in a sense. And it's because they have this sin attached to them. Because this is part of who they are. That we must love them. It is because they are where they are. That they need redemption. So. This, this cliche that we have to love the sinner and hate the sin is good. It's, it's accurate. Kenna explained this so well. 
in a sermon, I think it was two weeks ago, how that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We're not wrestling against the individual, but against the sin, against the system that, that is behind all of this. I recently read a book entitled The Insanity of God. I don't really care for the title. But the, the book is, the book is, is uh, actually um, really good. The, he, does, he doesn't give his name because of the nature of, of some of the things that are in it. He uh, talks about his, his work with a lot of um, uh, it, with, with Christians in persecuted countries and so on. But he gives his name as, as Nick Ripkin. And he talks about his missionary work in Somalia. Now, Somalia is a nation on the eastern side of Africa, right next to the, in the Horn of Africa, right next to the Indian Ocean. And civil war had been raging there for years. And this is, this is the context of this book. And he writes how there were several Westerners and four Somali believers had secretly met in a shelled out building in the capital city of Mogadishu. And they had observed communion together. And he writes, how that while they were remembering the Lord's sufferings, he thought about it, that there was probably no communion held in that city for many, many years before that. But he says that never before, when he had observed communion, did he think about the true cost and significance of Jesus' last supper with his disciples. And it was in that moment that there was serious concern raised in, in, his, in his mind about their four believing Somali brothers. And so not long after that, he heard about four believers that they had worked with, and he didn't know for sure who they were. But they had been ambushed and killed on their way to work by Somali Muslims. I'm going to read you just a section of that book. It says, A wave of dread washed over me. Even without hearing more details, I somehow felt that I knew more than my friend had shared. That's when he, when he heard the news. Hoping against hope that my suspicions were unfounded, I quickly learned that the four Somalis assassinated that day were the same four believers who had shared the Lord's Supper with us just weeks before. In what was a clearly coordinated assassin, in what was clearly a coordinated assassination plot, all four attacks had been launched within minutes of each other on the same morning. A radical Muslim group claimed credit. To add further cruelty, the murderers had stolen the bodies of the men they had assassinated and not one of the bodies was ever found. The day after the assassinations, I walked through the streets of our Mogadishu neighborhood with armed guards trailing along in my wake. Everywhere I looked, I saw destruction and suffering. As I thought about my murdered friends, I suddenly became so angry at the evil that I cried out to God. Like an Old Testament prophet wanting to call down destruction from on high. Why don't you just destroy these people, Lord? I demanded to know. They have already killed almost all your children in this country. None of these people deserves your salvation or your grace. The Spirit of God spoke to my heart in that instance. Neither, neither do you, Nick. You were no less lost than they are. But by my grace, you were born in an environment where they could hear, understand, and believe. These people have not had that opportunity. God reminded me of another truth from Scripture. Even while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. And then another thought came to mind. And Christ died not only for you, Nick, but for every Somali in the Horn of Africa. 
For a long time, I had known that I was not worthy of Christ's sacrifice. I understood that. I knew that my salvation was a result of God's grace. I knew all of that intellectually. But suddenly, I understood it at a deeper level. I saw my own sin more clearly. I saw my own evil heart. And I realized that without Jesus, there is simply no hope for anyone. In Somalia, it was easy to put people into categories. Good, bad, evil, godly, selfish, giving, ungrateful, kind, hateful. We attached the labels almost automatically. But here in this moment, I saw the lost condition of every human being without the grace of God. My anger, I believe, was an appropriate response to the evil. Indeed, God himself hates evil with a righteous fury. But those of us who claim to represent him, however, need to distinguish between the sin and the sinner. That was a daily struggle for me. In some days, it was especially difficult. Honestly, two two decades later, that continues to be a struggle. I had to work hard to remember that neither Islam nor Muslims were the real enemy here. Lostness was the enemy. The enemy was the evil that viciously misleads and traps people like lost sheep without a shepherd. The Somalis were the victims. They were not the source or even the cause of the evil in their land. They were victims suffering evil's grim effects. It spoke to my heart. Somehow, we need to see us And the world around us in these two kingdoms is the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness. It's the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of Satan. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. And it is our call as God's people to minister and to do what we can to bring people, victims, out of the grasp of Satan and into the kingdom of his dear son. One short verse in closing. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's kneel for prayer.